Good morning. The scripture passage this morning for the sermon comes from Genesis and from Hebrews, and you can follow along in your worship folder or it will be on the screen behind me. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And then from uh, the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is God's word. Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, so good to see you. Jonathan forgot to pray for our uh, satellite church meeting on Anna Maria Island this week, uh, where we have a lot of people. So it, it is good to see so many of you who made it out uh, here this morning. Thank you for coming and, and celebrating the Lord's Day with us. We are this summer in the middle of a series. In the month of June, we took a look at the call from the scripture to live a life aimed at the least. In other words, a call to the work of mercy and generosity in our city. In the month of July, we're going to look at what it means for us to be aimed at the lost. Uh, In fact, that we are sent out by God and called to a life of mission and sacrificial service to our neighbors, to our city, to our world. And we're going to begin this morning with this passage from Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham. Now, I have a theological reason and a practical reason for this sermon series. Okay? Just by way of introduction. Uh, Theologically. There is a great, great quote that uh, has been picked up by, and repeated by a number of pastors and theologians and missiologists, and I can't remember who to attribute it to, so I, I apologize. But it goes something like this, uh, quote, instead of saying that God's church has a mission, it's more correct to say that God's mission has a church. Let me say it again. Instead of saying that God's church has a mission, it is more accurate or more correct to say that God's mission has a church. In other words, the church is 
not more important than the larger work of what God is doing in the world. It is defined, in fact, by the mission of God in the world. It is, it is, it exists and it is there precisely because there is a larger mission. And without that mission, there would be no church. And therefore, a church that is not on mission is not really a church. Does that make sense? Thank you, Carter. I can always count on you. Thanks. Right? The church is the church only when there is something bigger than people's lives that that they're being swept up into. A mission that inspires the kind of radical sacrifice and generosity uh, that Scripture calls us to. So there's a theological reason. The church is here. We're here. This thing we're doing is here only because there is a larger work of God that we're called to participate in. And without being connected to that larger work of God, what we're doing here is not only dysfunctional, it's not even legitimate. But practically, I want to say that the church doesn't work if there's no mission driving it. Because the church is defined, by definition, the church is a group of people committed to living unselfishly towards one another. A church is a group of people who've willingly subordinated their desires and even their needs to the desires and the needs of others into their community and to their world. This is what the church is. So pettiness, then, pettiness is a sign that the church has lost its mission. Division in the church, especially over things that don't really matter, is a sign that the church has lost its mission. And that's the problem with the way we do church. There's this whole strategy in American evangelicalism today that tries to appeal to the selfishness of the human heart in order to gain an audience. It creates programs to meet people's needs and fashions worship services to appeal to people's desires and preferences. And all of it is meant to say, we're here to serve you. And it's created this consumer mentality among people who come to church these days. And the problem is that the only way the church works is not if you appeal to that selfishness, but if somehow by the power of the gospel, that selfishness that is the native soil of the human heart, the self-interest and self-centeredness and self-concern that just breeds in our lives, the only way church works is if that's rooted out and replaced by a desire to love and serve other people. So that's why that's why it's important to constantly be reminding us, okay, there's something bigger going on in the world than me. There's something bigger than you. There's something bigger than Church of the Redeemer. There's something bigger than the Presbyterian Church in America going on in the world. And we need to get a vision of what that is because it's that vision that will call us out of our self-centeredness into a life of mission, which is exactly what God calls us to. Now, so the month of July... We're going to be focusing on what it means for us to be church for the world. And we've said from the very beginning, our goal as a church is not to be a great church. Our goal is a great city. So what does it mean for us to be a church for the city of Winter Haven? What, is it, what does it look like? What would a ripple effect of, the gospel, of a gospel movement among us and our city look like and be throughout all the nations of the earth? See, that's what we want to spend the month of July talking about. And if you're going to talk about these things, you have to begin with Genesis, Genesis 12 and the story of Abraham. It is an archetypal story. It's a, it's, paradigma, it's a paradigm for all of faithful Christian living, the way that God deals with Abraham here in these verses. So we have to look at, at these verses, okay? And we're going to see four things this morning. I've got a lot to say because this is just a massively important passage. Uh, and we've got to get to communion too, so I've got to go fast, okay? Uh, four things. I want us to see, first, the backstory to this call. God calls Abraham. I want to see the backstory to the call, the strategy in the call, the demand of the call, and then the fulfillment of it or the power for living into the call. Those four things. The backstory of the call, the strategy in the call, 
the demand of the call, and then the fulfillment or the power to live out the call, okay? So let's walk through Genesis 12 and Hebrews 11, looking at those four headings, beginning with just this. What do I mean by the backstory of the call? You see, Genesis 12, if you have your Bible open or if you're familiar, it's at the very beginning of our scriptures, and it marks a transition in this book of Genesis. It introduces us to this man, Abram, son of Terah, but it, but it begs us to ask, you know, what came before this scene in the book of Genesis that helps us make sense of it? What happened before we get to this place? And in, back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Yahweh created the heavens and the earth, and he took a little slice of that creation and he turned it into a paradise. It was a garden, the Garden of Eden. And he put a man and a woman in that garden to tend and to care for it. And he gave them a very specific job assignment. He told them to multiply and to go out into the rest of the world and to turn the rest of the creation into the garden of God, to bring the whole of creation under the rule of Yahweh so that it might experience his shalom, his blessing, his flourishing, his peace. I mean, God had a mission. And he created Adam and Eve to be his missionaries, to be his vice regents, to rule for him in his place. They were to be his image bearers in the world. In other words, because he had a mission, they had a mission. But in Genesis 3, we see that the man and the woman do not carry out this mission. Instead, they rebel against their creator. Instead of worshiping him and serving him, as he asked of them, they set themselves up in his place and tried to bend the creation to worship and serve them. In other words, instead of living in grateful, uh, you know, instead of being grateful for his generosity and all the good things that he brought into their lives, they took his good gifts and they used them for their own purposes. In other words, the way God created them was to live like this, that their wants and their desires would be subservient to the greater purposes that he was carrying out in the world, but their personal and desires and longings and selfish preferences became their ultimate good. In other words, instead of living missionally, they began to live selfishly. Instead of living for something greater than themselves, they chose to live only for themselves. And the theologians call this the fall of man, that we are fallen, that we no longer are what we once were, that something has been lost, something has malfunctioned. And you witness it as the story in Genesis goes on, as we come closer to this passage in Genesis 12, 12 in, in chapter 4, uh, Cain, the son of Adam, murders his brother. And from there, things go from bad to worse to absolute anarchy until you get to chapter 6, where God indicts man saying this in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that, listen to this characterization, every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Now think about this for a second with me. I was struck by this. From what happens there in the early pages of Genesis. In Genesis 1, God looks at man and says, it is very good. And we get from, very quickly we go from God looking at man and saying, that is very good. To God in chapter 6, looking at man and saying, every intention of the heart is only evil continually in 86 verses. From that to that. Two pages in my Bible. In other words, things have gone desperately wrong. The mission of God has not been carried out. The shalom of God has not gone out into the world. Human community is not flourishing. Humanity is not what we once were. We are a shadow of our former selves. And this is the mess we're in. And this is the backstory. This is what I mean by the backstory to the call of Abraham. God has a mission. He created us to be his image bearers, to carry out his mission in the world. 
in his absence to be his representatives and his missionaries. But instead of living missionally, we have chosen to live selfishly. And so now we have six billion people running around living only for themselves. Every inclination of the heart bent only towards evil continually. Does that make sense of the world we live in? It does, doesn't it? And yet we see not only the backstory, but we can begin to see the strategy that God is going to employ in the call of Abraham to counteract this. And you see Genesis 12 is a marvelous reminder that God's not given up on us, that he's still working the same plan. And out of the prevailing godlessness of those chapters in Genesis that come just before this, he calls one man and one man's family to be his chosen instrument for bringing his shalom and blessing to the world. Now make the connection. In Genesis 1, God looks at Adam and Eve and he says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to multiply and spread out and have dominion. Here in Genesis 12, he takes Abraham and he, he takes Abraham aside and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. So there's an obvious connection between the two scenes. And really, in many ways, this is the doctrine of election. God chooses Abraham out of all of the peoples of the earth to be his instrument, his conduit through which he will accomplish his purposes, and his mission in the world. This is the strategy. You see it right here. Look here. God would bless Abraham and make him a blessing. God's going to bless Abraham and make him a blessing. That's the strategy. Okay? So what does it mean for God to bless him then? This word bless is used five times in these verses, these three verses here. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's a Hebrew word, barak. Uh, Bruce Walkie, who is my seminary professor, uh, Old Testament seminary professor at RTS, uh, who I, I dearly love. We used to call him Moses because <laughs> he just he was old and he seemed to really love Jesus. Uh, but we lo- I loved him. And he, uh, he has written a commentary on the book of Genesis that obviously I picked up. And in that commentary, he says that this word bless here, when God says he's going to bless Abraham, it really means three things. It means first, uh, prosperity. That Yahweh is going to make Abram rich and give him an abundance of material possessions. And indeed, in verse 2 of the next chapter, chapter 13, we see that Abraham is rich in livestock and silver and in gold. But ultimately, the prosperity that God promises Abraham really is tied up in this idea he's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a place to live where his family can grow large and his herds can, can flourish. And so God's going to bless him materially with prosperity and a land. But secondly, it means potency or fertility, Bruce Walke says. It refers to, in other words, this idea that Abraham's going to have a son. And in the Old Testament, when God talked about blessing people, there was a direct connection between God's blessing and children. Which, we're a church of many children, right? Jody, can I get an amen? Right? Right? Lots and lots of children. Can I tell you what that means? It means we're a church that's richly blessed by God. Because the blessing is connected to children. And for Abraham, this was very clear, very clear. Over and over again, God tells Abram, I'm going to give you children that are like the dust of the earth. They're going to be so many, you can't even count them. They will be, he takes them out. Look at the stars in heaven. I am going to give you children that outnumber the stars of the sky. And what's fascinating is, is when we're introduced to Abram in the previous chapter, we're told only one thing about his family, and that is that he has a wife named Sarai, and she's barren. And so it's the author's way of foreshadowing what's going to be the tension of Abraham's story, right? And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know this. There's going to be this constant theme of Abraham having to walk in faith towards God, who's promised him a child, though he's old as dirt, and married to a woman who's old as dirt, and beyond childbearing ages and barren. 
And yet God's going to be faithful to his promises. But then thirdly, Bruce Walkie says there's a third kind of aspect dynamic to this. So not only that it means that God's going to make him prosperous, that he's going to make him potent and fertile, it also means he's going to give him victory. God's going to give him a land, he's going to give him a son, and he's going to make his name great, we're told here. Abram will be blessed with power and influence and significant social standing among the nations of the earth. He would be highly esteemed, is what God is promising. So, we see God would bless him. He would give him riches and material wealth. He would give him property, a land. He would make him fruitful and give him children that outnumber the stars in the sky. He would make him strong and powerful. But here's the principle that we have to see. God would bless Abraham, we're told, in order to make him a blessing. In other words, whatever material possessions or riches he received, he was to use them to accomplish the mission. He was to pass them along. Whatever strength, whatever political or social standing he received, he was to leverage that for the sake of others. He was to live missionally, not selfishly. And so we come to Psalm 67, which was our call to worship, and you see the way that this began. This idea began to inform the way the people of Israel lived before God. And in Psalm 67, the psalmist prays, May God, I mean, this is just fascinating. You can see it there. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known in all the earth. Now, you see, the psalmist understands that the best way for God to bring his salvation to the rest of the world, how's God going to do that? I mean, what's the strategy for God to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth? The best way for God to do that is for him to abundantly bless his people. And so he prays, bless us so that we can be a blessing. Now, he doesn't pray, notice, bless us so that we can be happy. Bless us, not even bless us so we will praise you. No, he says, bless us, God. God, put your blessing upon our lives so that the direct result will be that the nations of the earth will come to know you and praise you. And so there's a doctrine that is being that, that is being revealed to us here. There's a teaching that we've got to wrap our heads around, and it's just this. It's that, and this is the way I would say it, salvation, the blessing of God, you know, all of the riches of God's working in your life, salvation has come to you on its way to somebody else. Salvation's come to you on its way to somebody else. I mean, whatever gifts, whatever resources he's blessed you with, they are not yours, they're not mine to use however we want. They're giving. They're not given to us for us to use selfishly. If God has blessed you or me, whatever it is, that thing has come to you with the intention that it passed through you to someone else. In other words, God blesses strategically. We read 2 Corinthians 9 a couple of weeks ago in CBR and Community Bible Reading. Uh, listen to it again, verse 11. Here's what Paul says. He says, you will be made rich in every way. You know, amen, right? We love that. There's a promise. I can, you know, there is a promise from God that he's, you will be made rich in every way, but we got to keep reading because here's what he says. You will be made rich in every way so that, in other words, purpose clause, so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So according to Paul, what it, why does God grant riches to people? God grants riches to people to make them generous in every occasion. 
you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. So don't make the mistake that a whole segment of the church makes. They ignore the purpose clause, the second part of this promise. They see election as a set of privileges which they can selfishly keep for themselves. I mean, in other words, there's this prevailing doctrine out there. God blesses me for my personal enjoyment. No. See, the blessing of God is not the goal. See, the, the, the people who hold to that view, they don't see, they see election as a set of privileges, is not as a responsibility. And the teaching of the Bible is God blesses me not for my personal enjoyment. God blesses me to make me a blessing. And the enjoyment of those things is in the, being the blessing. I mean, this is what Paul said. It's, it is more joyful to give than to receive. So the blessing of God is the instrument but being a blessing is the goal. So we have to change the way we think, you see, about money and about material possessions. Money is a tool given to us by God for the sake of his mission. Material possessions are tools given to us by God for the sake of his purposes in, in the world. We, we have to change the way we think about work. A job isn't just a job, not if you follow Jesus. It's not just a way to get the money to buy the lifestyle that you want or the stuff that you want. It's a vocation. It's the way, whatever my job is, it's the way God is putting me to work for the sake of his mission in the world. I mean, whatever way God's blessed you, whatever he's done, he's blessed you for this purpose to make you a blessing. Now think, imagine it a little bit about that. If God has saved you, if you're here, you know, and the electing love of God has found you and called you like Abraham, it's for the purpose of putting you to work. So the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So if you're a Christian, I mean, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to understand, to become a Christian is just that. It means to be taken hold of. It means to have your life turned upside down, to be given a completely new set of goals, priorities, a new vision, a new trajectory for living. And so this begs us to ask, doesn't it? Am I living selfishly? Or am I living missionally? And the strategy in the call is that God would bless you and me. That he would give us life and salvation and money and resources and relational networks and talents and all these things. But all of them coming to us on their way to somebody else. Bless us. I mean, can you, I mean bless us, Lord, that the city of Winter Haven might come to know. Not bless us so we can build a bigger building. Not bless us so we can have, you know, nicer things. Bless us, O oh Lord. Because that's the way Winter Haven's going to come to know you. And so I want to ask, <laughs> this, this, are you just blessed? We say that a lot, don't we? I'm so blessed. But I think the question is not, are you just blessed? It's, are you a blessing? Because that's what it means to live faith. So you see the strategy, okay? But pressing on, thirdly then, let's see the demand. There's a demand here as well. So if the strategy is that God would bless us and that make us a blessing, uh, there's a demand to the call that we see as well. In other words, what does it require of us? What has to happen in our lives in order for us to live faithfully as the children of Abraham who were called, just like he was, to go and make disciples of all the nations of the earth? And there are two things that you see. Uh, that, that God requires of Abraham and so by necessity requires of us. Abraham had to leave and he had to go on a journey of faith. So look at the instructions again here in verses 1 and then again in verse 4. 
God says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. And then in verse 4, so Abraham went. And then again, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Bruce Walkie, my professor, again says that this word used three times here means to determinatively disassociate oneself with. In other words, Abraham, God is saying, Abraham had to be converted. He had to trade in one life for a whole new way of living. He had to die. I mean, his life as he knew it had to come to an end so that he could live unreservedly into the call of God. In particular, look, I mean, this is here. I wish it wasn't because I don't really like talking about these things, to be honest. But it's here. He had to renounce the loyalties and commitments he had very specifically to his country and to his family. So there are national and familial ties that make claims upon us that demanded loyalty from us. Both of them, both nation and family, create idle structures that we have to come out from, that have to be forsaken. And this is clear from the text. I mean, in chapter 11, you don't have it there. There's a lot of evidence in chapter 11, just before this passage, that Abram and his family were immersed, the family of Terah, his father, were immersed in the worship of the moon goddess Sin, which was very an Akkadian, you know, idol in this part of the world during this time. Both Ur and Haran, mentioned as places where they lived, were known to be important centers of the moon goddess cult. Abram's wife, Sarai, and Nahor, his brother's wife, Milka are probably named after the moon goddess's lover and daughter, respectively. So the scholars pick up on this, and they say, see, God is calling Abraham to forsake the worship of the false god that his family is immersed in. He has to get out. He has to leave. He has to get away from it. He has to forsake the idle structures of his nation and his family. And I realize, believe me, how sensitive I need to be in saying this, especially this weekend when we celebrate the birth of our nation. (laughs) I don't want to sound unpatriotic or to make little of God's providence in the birth of our nation nor of all the good that we as a nation have accomplished in the world for our brief history but the scripture is very clearly warning us how powerful allegiance to country and how powerful allegiance to family can be and how hard it is to overcome the idol clusters the idol structures that make up both country and family that work against wholehearted commitment to the commands of Jesus see no no amens on that one And so in the same sense, we are called to walk away. We are called, like Abraham, to experience a change of citizenship and embrace and live according to the values and priorities of the kingdom of God, which are very different in many ways and entirely opposed to the beliefs and values and priorities of our nation and our family. Let me give you a couple of examples. uh, My family's all here, which makes this kind of uncomfortable that I've got to talk about the idol structures of our family, but... Nevertheless, uh, we, I grew up in a very, a very fluent home in many ways uh, and happened to be surrounded by a bunch of people in my family who have been very successful. Uh, my uncle lives across the street from what was George Steinbrenner's house in Tampa. Uh, very successful bu- uh, businessman and lawyer there in Tampa. My brother-in-law is a professional baseball player who makes multi-million dollars a year. Uh, my dad was an attorney and did very well, and I grew up at Lake Region Country Club playing on the golf course and going to tennis camp. Okay, I've said this over and over again to you. And so this, this pursuit of and love for material things and the idolatry of money and success is a very powerful reality in my family's life. And when I, it took me, I'm not kidding, it took me about three years to wrestle my heart into obedience to the call on my life of ministry, which I knew. I was absolutely convinced, man, I was going to live in abject poverty for the rest of my life. 
while everybody else around me is building these really big houses and doing all these nice things. And so they take, you know, they're going to take vacations that I'm not going to be go, able to go on and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And it really was, it was something that I had to really forsake. So that's family. Uh, think about na- national idol structures. Francis Schaeffer, uh, who, who's written a number of books, he described our, our kind of cultural idolatry as a nation uh, as a commitment to two values, he said. Really, really at the core, our nation has two overriding values, and they are personal peace and affluence. And by personal peace, he meant this radical individualism, this attitude that says, leave me alone, don't trouble me with the trouble of others. He put it this way, he says, it is this wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed. You can't tell me what to do. And then affluence, this overwhelming and increasing prosperity, things and things and more things and success judged by even higher levels of material abundance. And he said, if you want to know what American culture is really about, it really is about those two things. And so obviously you can see both in my family and your family, by the way, but and, and in our culture as a nation, do you see how at, odd those, how at odds those values and commitments are with the call that is on our lives in the call of Abraham to be blessed in order to be a blessing? And so there has to be a profound change in orientation, a change in allegiance uh, uh, f- from a life story and a mission that are, that are informed and shaped by the beliefs and the values in, uh, of American ideology and culture toward a life story and mission that is informed and shaped by the beliefs and values of the kingdom of God. We have to depart. We have to be converted. So that God's word and God's call begin to define our lives. And so Miroslav Volf who's a Croatian theologian who probably has some insight into American idolatry and how the American church is really so wedded to American culture and ideology. He wrote, he said, Christians can never be first of all Americans and then Christian. At the very core of Christian identity lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty from a given culture to the gods of all cultures. A response to a call from that God entails the rearrangement of a whole network of allegiances and commitments. And that's what we're talking about. That's what, that's what God calls Moses, I mean, excuse me, Abram to do. There's a rearrangement of the whole network of allegiances and, and commitments that has to take place in his life. And this is what Jesus meant in the Gospels when he came preaching the kingdom of God. And he said, repent. Change the way you live. Repent. He called his disciples. Remember, what he, when he came across his disciples, what did he say? Leave your nets. Leave your father's house and come and follow me. That's what repentance is. It means to think differently in light of this dawning new reality. It means to, to, to walk away from and forsake all of the ways that I, the idle structures of family and nation would hold us captive and not allow us to live faithfully into the call. You have to be converted. You have to embrace an alternate way of thinking and believing and living that transcends any earthly culture or any family value system, whether... You know, no matter what it might be. But then secondly, and this is going to be a lot shorter, responding to God's call not only demands a departure from Abraham, but it also requires a journey of faith. And so God tells him, go, look there in verse 1, to the land that I will show you. And we learn from Hebrews, and it's why it included the passage that Abraham obeyed and left, verse 8, not knowing where he was going. God said, I'm going to give you a land. And Abraham couldn't see the land. He didn't know where it was. God said, I will give you children more numerous than the stars in the heaven. But Abraham had a wife who was barren. He couldn't see those children. And so the call of God was pushing Abraham. What's happening is is it pushing him out 
beyond what he's able to produce in his own strength. God, the, the call of God forced him to a place of weakness and vulnerability where his needs were greater than his ability to meet his needs, and he had nothing to draw on but to look to God for provision and victory, and that's exactly the point. See, the Scripture is telling us you have to stop trying to provide for yourself. You have to stop trying to arrange for your life. I mean, we, you and I, we have to stop working out our own plan. We have to stop trying to control things. And all that's just another way of saying you and I, we have to stop trying to play the role of God in our lives. And we have to trust him. And that's the struggle, isn't it? I mean, can I take my money and my possessions and use them to be a blessing to others, right? That's scary. I mean, will God take care of me if I do that? Will there be enough for me? I mean, can I live radically generous? Can I live missionally, not selfishly, giving away the things that he gives me for the sake of the greater mission that he's trying to accomplish in the world? I mean, what what about me? How am I going to provide for me and my family? I mean, that's the struggle of faith. And And the Bible doesn't give you any answer other than you've got to trust him. And so how do you find the courage to do that? And that's why we can't end the sermon right there because we have to answer that question. You see, if we ended the sermon right there, if I said, well, there you go, you know, Abraham gave up everything to follow God, and so now you go and give up everything to follow God. Let's pray. Right, if I did that, if that was the end of the sermon, that's only bad news. That's not good news. You hear me? I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a nice little moral lesson, but there's no power because I've got to get up tomorrow and face real feels, fears and real concerns. I mean, if Abraham is only meant to be a model for me to, to follow and to imitate, then the demands of that will absolutely crush me. But of course, of course Abraham is meant to be a model for what life looks like a life of faith but see if you only see that if you don't also see that abraham is meant to point you beyond himself to point you beyond the story to someone else then the demands of this passage will absolutely bury you see the story is not meant to be just an example of what our lives should look like so that abraham is a hero for all of us to imitate no it's meant to point us to the one who would ultimately accomplish the mission given to abraham the seed the child the descendant who would come and when matthew opens his gospel in Matthew 1, 1, he opens it with a genealogy, and the genealogy starts like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, guess who? Abraham. You see, Matthew connects Jesus to Abraham because it is in Jesus that the promise to Abraham and the mission given to Abraham are fulfilled. So how do you find the courage to be not just be blessed, but to be a blessing? You've got to look beyond this passage to Jesus. He, Jesus, was fabulously wealthy. Yet he gave all of his riches away for the sake of being a blessing to others. He was powerful, and yet he became a servant. He had a great name, the name above every name. And yet he became nothing and was obedient to the point of death on a cross. And if ever there was one who took his wealth and his possessions and his status and used those things not selfishly but to be a blessing, it was him. And that's why you can trust him. Think about it. Jesus doesn't call you to do anything he's not willing to do. He calls you to leave your country and your father's house. But he left his country. And he left his father's house. To come into the world on a rescue mission to save you. And me. He who was blessed of the father from all eternity, Paul says in Galatians 3, became a curse for us. He endured the wrath and the curse of God because it was the only way for us to save us from our sins. The struggle of faith. I mean, if I live, I mean, if I really live that way, is God going to take care of me? The answer of the scripture is absolutely. Look at Jesus. Look at all that God has given to you in Jesus. Look at the journey of faith that Jesus undertook for the sake of rescuing you. And then wrestle your heart around Romans 8, 
31 and 32, which we've been memorizing. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? See, that's the promise of this table. We come to this table and we eat and we drink the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus who was sacrificed in our place for our sin. And if he was willing to do this, if he was willing to go all the way to having his body broken and his blood spilled in order to rescue and redeem us, will he provide for us? Of course. That's why the psalmist says, I've never seen the righteous hungry or their children begging for bread. Go be a blessing. Go, you know, look, look at this meal. Look at this bread. Look at this cup. Be reminded of all that Jesus has done and of the generosity that God has shown to you. And now go and be a blessing. See, that's what, that's what this, is, this, this passage is informing us. That's what this practice is trying to form in us, this, this habit of the living out of the blessing of God, believing that we can never stretch ourselves so far that he cannot come to our defense. And he, we can never indebt ourselves so much that he can't pay our bills. And so it's in looking at Jesus that we find the courage to really follow God in the way that he calls us to in this, in this story of Abraham. And so that's why we come to this table now. And so let's pray as we wrestle our hearts towards coming. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, there is so much in this passage that is uh, hard for us to even figure out how to apply to our lives. And so we pray you give us great wisdom and also give us great courage. As we come to the supper now, would you, um, would you meet with us as you promised to do here? Or would you come and draw near to us and, and would you be present as the scripture tells us that you are as we partake of this meal together? And would you uh, increase our faith, Lord Jesus? that we might bear fruit that would be to your glory. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask you in response to the preaching of the word as a way of just faithfully responding back to God that you would stand with me as we do every week uh, in preparation for coming to the Lord's table to recite the Apostles' Creed together. So I would uh, do that. And I would ask Christian, in an age of unbelief, as an expression of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If the struggle of obedience is the struggle of faith, to truly believe that God will be true to his promises to be true to his word, to do for us all that he promises to do and to be for us. If that is the struggle of faithfulness and obedience in the Christian life, then this meal uh, is very strategic and and, and really God is very wise to have given it to us because it is here that we come and in a very special way we look upon and gaze upon and experience anew the reality of God's love for us that is so great 
and so profound that he would go all the way to sending his son into the world to suffer and die in our place. And as Paul says, if he is willing to do that, if God was willing to, to part with his greatest treasure in order to have you, then that's the assurance that no matter what you might need from this time forward, it's yours as well along with him. I mean, this is the $10 billion check. So when you need 100 bucks, no big deal. And so we come to this table because it, we come... Uh, because God means for it to be an aid to our faith. We come to partake of his body and his blood together, and by doing so, to have our faith increased toward a greater faithfulness to him and the mission that he's called us to. That's the strategic nature of this meal, and that's why we partake of it. I need to give you a couple of warnings uh, by way of self-examination, as we do every time, uh, that we want you to think through things in this way. First, this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not the table of the Church of Redeemer nor of the Presbyterian Church in America. It is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is meant uh, to be for those who have put their faith and trust in him. So if you're not a Christian, or you're not sure if you're a Christian, and you've never gone public, or you've never joined with the body of believers, we would ask that you would refrain from coming. Instead, come this week, call the office and talk to Jonathan or I, and let's just figure those things out. We will take this meal again together next month, and you'd be... Uh, We'd be glad for you to do that then. But if you are a Christian, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then we invite you to come to partake of his body and his blood. But a second warning uh, by way of the scripture is that if you're here, and yes, you're a believer, but you're not at peace. In other words, there's a need somehow in your life, there's a need for reconciliation to occur. The scripture is very, very clear that where there's a need for reconciliation, where there's a relational dynamic that is out of whack, that the Bible says you need to go and to take care of that relationship before you come and partake of this, because this is a meal where we celebrate Jesus' death to reconcile us to the Father. And it would be hypocrisy for us to come and celebrate being reconciled to him without being reconciled to one another. Does that make sense? And again, we're going to celebrate this next month. There's no shame in staying where you are and passing the opportunity because there's work for you to do for you to come back next month and do that. So we just warn you in those ways of self-examination, okay? Uh, the way we logistically do this, we're going to ask that you come to the center aisle and come forward. There will be servers here at the front. If you would return on the outside, take your bread and your cup. Once you've, uh, everybody's been seated, once everybody's been served and seated, we will um, partake together. So just hold on to those things as you return uh, to your seats, okay? Let me, and one way of encouragement, when you come... I don't know why this happens in the church, but a lot of times it's when we do the Lord's Supper, it's kind of like we just... I'm just going to ask you, if if your faith is in Jesus, come and smile. Come and rejoice. Solemnly, right? I mean, solemnly, but you know, it's the old thing. I say it all the time. If you believe the good news in your heart, would you please notify your face and come and celebrate. Let's celebrate. Come eagerly. To the, to the very life-giving source of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's celebrate reverently, but let's celebrate joyfully together this morning, okay? That would be an encouragement to me, to see smiles and people happy. Like this is, like this is the bread their soul needs, uh, which is exactly what it is. Uh, so on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying... This is my body, broken for you. And after dinner, he took the cup and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
shed for you. My body is real food and my blood is real drink. He said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will abide in you and you will abide in me. Uh, And that is the promise that we hold on to as we come together. So let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, would you come? And as I pray, servers, if you would come forward. Would you come now as we eat this meal together? And would you do what you promised to do to come and draw near to us? Would you take our, 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 our cold, dead hearts and would you warm them at the fire of your love? Would you come and by the power of your spirit using this meal produce a greater faith and obedience in us? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please come. So taking the bread together joyfully and reverently, this is the body of Christ for you. And taking the cup, again, joyfully yet reverently, this is the, this is the blood of Christ for you. Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, we marvel at your provision for us, that you, your love for us was so great. Uh, that you shed your blood and you uh, had your body broken. You lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. That we might truly be blessed of the Father. That his face might shine upon us. That he might be gracious to us and you. Forgive us for all of the ways we still doubt. Uh, that we live in unbelief. That we, uh, we that how dare we gaze upon uh, this meal and yet still question whether or not God will provide for us. Forgive us. Uh, we, we confess to you. We believe. Help our unbelief. Uh, so we pray for the Spirit to come in the midst of our, uh, our reluctancy and sin and unbelief and to empower us to a greater faith and a greater obedience. Uh, for the sake, not for our sake, but for the sake of our city and our world. We pray, Father, bless us that we might be a blessing. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Uh, every month when we do communion, we have in the service by doing a mercy offering. So the men are going to come and pass uh, the buckets, I guess they're not plates, buckets along to you. Uh, all of the money we collect during this offering will go to caring for the needs uh, of the poor and, and others that are in great need, both in our church and in our city. I would encourage you. Uh, in the first six months of the year, we took in $3,000 more in this offering than we expected to take in the whole year. Uh, so you have proven to be a very, very generous people, and we appreciate that. And I would ask you to continue to be generous this morning because uh, the need is great and the work is overwhelming. So give generously as he has given generously to you. Uh, guys, as you do that, as they do, I've asked Debbie Martin to come uh, because uh, we usually do a ministry report during this time. So while they pass the plate, Debbie is here uh, we've been doing testimonies all summer, and just another brief testimony about a one way that God is calling a lady into mission and evangelism in our city. Debbie uh, works with uh, an organization and ha- has a neat story, so I'm just going to ask her a couple questions, and she's going to answer, okay? Make sure you get into the microphone so they can hear you. So tell us a little bit about what you do, Youth for Christ, and what they do, and how you're involved okay. in ministry. Uh, Youth for Christ is a nationwide organization. Um, that ministers, of course, to youth. And here in Polk County, 
the focus is on the troubled youths. This is, these are the children that are in the jails. Um, we have neighborhood groups that we minister to. And these are the kids that are forgotten and there's nobody else. Mm. And I can tell you from being a youth pastor for many years, the numbers are staggering at the percentages of people who make faith commitments before the age of 18 versus after. So it's a very strategic ministry. Tell us a little bit about what you do for them and how you volunteer. In okay, I'm involved in a girls group. We pick up girls in the community that um, are at risk. They have um, very undesirable situations they're living in, and we give them a meal. Uh, and Tammy is a great cook, by the way. <laughs> she cooks. Um, we play games with them, and, of course, we give them the Bible and teach them how to live. We give them the basics. Great, great. Mm-hmm. And you have one interesting story that I wanted you to tell the congregation about, something that happened. Just recently, I'd been ministering to a girl and dropping by her house, um, picking her up. And I really felt compelled to, at some point, ask her father if he had accepted Christ. So I asked him, and he said, well, I have. And I said, do you feel like you know the Lord now? And he said, I'm not sure. So I said, do you want to say, you know, do you want to accept Christ? And he said, yes. So I just had him um, pray the sinner's prayer, and he accepted Christ. Very cool. So uh, I was just struck by Debbie's story of evangelism, which uh, I, am, I am terrible at. And so I rejoice that God has brought people in our church. And, and, and again, I just want you to see, this is, uh, I don't think Debbie would consider herself a super saint or any, or any you know, superstar in the kingdom of God. She's just a... She's just a lady who's, you know, trying to live out the principles of the Bible and to live on mission in our city, and so we're very grateful. Thank you. But I would like to say why I got interested in it. Um, I just have one son, so I kind of wanted to minister to girls as part of giving them a mothering touch where they didn't have that. So Mm. that's how I got interested. Neat. Yeah. And then again, circumstances of life that lead to that. So don't think we're talking about big things. We're talking about ways for you to just reach out to the people who are right around you. So thank you, Debbie. I really appreciate it. Amen. Praise God. Uh, Terry, come and lead us. To follow Jesus means, I mean, you know, let's, let's don't sugarcoat this. He really is calling us as a people out into the world to take all the things that he's blessed us with and to use them to be a blessing. Uh, and, so, and that's hard, and, and, and it really is, uh, there really is a struggle for faith that goes on in the midst of that, and that is why even this benediction is so important, because the promise is that as he sends you out, he promises to be with you. He promises to make his face shine upon you, to bless you, and to, uh, to give you everything you need, and that is the promise of the benediction. And so, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then no matter how dire your circumstances might be, no matter how uh, hard the struggle of faith might be for you, Rest in this promise and receive it. Okay? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.